Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Our almighty King, our Lord in heaven, the one who created us out of nothing and has revealed himself to us. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. We thank you for having us united us together in your spirit. We thank you for your word. And we ask today that you teach us your word, that you change us by it, and that you help us to live lives that give you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Ephesians, we see the most advanced theology of the early church. In fact, in this epistle, we see the fullness of Paul's theology concerning subjects such as Christ, end times, the church. It's no wonder why John Calvin called Ephesians his favorite book of the Bible. And then John Knox asked for John Calvin's sermons on Ephesians to be read to him on his deathbed. After all, Ephesians is by all means a theological masterpiece and an important part of God's revelation to the church throughout the ages. One of the unique features of this letter is that unlike Paul's other letters where he uses the word church to refer to the local church, in Ephesians, every time he uses the word church, it refers to the universal church, which is all people everywhere and throughout all time who have been united to Christ and each other through faith in the Holy Spirit. Because of this, Ephesians serves to unite us as the church and point us properly to Christ together. One of the other unique features of this letter is that it provides us with the most extensive and detailed teaching on spiritual warfare that we can find anywhere in the Bible. And this subject, spiritual warfare, is misunderstood. On one end of the spectrum, we have people who want to take it to extremes. On the other end of the spectrum, we have people who want to deny or reject or even argue against spiritual warfare. But today, we are going to learn from Scripture, properly interpreted, how to manage spiritual warfare as the church. So if you will, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 20. Please join me as we read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to thy end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am, I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Today's message is titled, How to Wear the Armor of God. And in our passage, we are going to see four main directives concerning how to wear the armor of God. And the first one we see is be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. The word finally in the beginning of our passage here in the Greek is actually a word that means henceforth or from now on. And it lets us know that our passage serves as a culminating conclusion to the entire epistle. In other words, everything in Ephesians comes to a head and is applied in our passage. And then our passage is governed by an overarching command, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In fact, the rest of our passage here is really just commentary on this command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Yet this imperative, be strong, is actually in the passive voice, which means that it's better to be understood as become strong or be made strong or be strengthened. And it reminds us that we are contingent beings. We are fully dependent upon God for everything, for our life, for our being, for our sustenance, everything. And we have no might. We have no power. We have no strength in and of ourselves. And we are being told here to locate our strength in the Lord, which is a reference to union with Christ. All throughout the letter to the Ephesians, union with Christ is central. And in Ephesians, we are reminded that we are not just united to the resurrected Lord, but we are united to the resurrected and ascended Lord who came and conquered and accomplished our salvation before ascending to the right hand of the Father where he now rules over all of creation. And we are united to him. And he is the mighty warrior who came to save, and it's in his might that we can find our strength. God's people have always been told to look to God alone for their strength. In Psalm 28.8, it says, The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. In other words, for those of us who were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, Christ is our saving refuge because he is the Lord who came to save his people and he is our strength. Yet even before the time of the incarnation, God's people have always been told to not only look to God alone for strength, but also for salvation. A good example of this can be found in the book of Judges, chapters 6 and 7, where God calls Gideon to lead an army against Midian. 
And so Gideon constructs an army of tens of thousands of men. And as he's about to go into battle, God says no. He said no. I'm not going to give them into your hands while you have that many people. Because then you'll think that you did this yourself. And so he told him to chop down the army. And he continued to chop down the army until there were only 300 men. Then as he's about to go into battle, he divides the men, blows the trumpet, and God himself moves on the people of Midian, causing them to turn on each other and kill each other so that God's people never had to fight. And in the same way, you are being told here to look to Christ alone, not only for your salvation, but also for your strength. Yet this raises the obvious question, how do we do that? And the next directive tells us, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Take a look at verses 11 through 13 again. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here we are literally being told to put on like clothing the whole armor of God. Yet the word in Greek that's being translated here as whole armor was actually a word that was specifically used to describe the full set of armor that a Roman soldier would wear. And when we read through this passage, we do not see all of those pieces of armor. So the point here is not to put on all of these pieces of armor, but that the whole armor is of God, meaning from God. As God the Father sent God the Son into the world to save sinners, and you are being told here to put on Christ. We saw in Ephesians chapter 4, and you can also see in the parallel passage to that one in Colossians chapter 3, how we were commanded to put on the new self right after putting off the old self. And what that's talking about is to put off the old ways of doing things in the darkness and to put on new ways of doing things in the light of the Lord. And in the same way, we are being told here to put on our union with Christ, which is the armor of God, by changing changing the way we live. Let me repeat that. You are being told here to put on your union with Christ, which is the armor of God, by changing the way you live. And we are given three reasons as to why we need to do this in this portion of our text here. And the first one is, <clears throat> excuse me, because the devil is scheming. We can go all the way back to the beginning and we can see how God made everything good and then put man in the garden and, and told him to tend to it. Having given him this task, he then created Eve as a helper for him in his mission. But then we see the devil in the serpent looking to pull God's people away. The devil is a schemer. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And he wants to pull you and me and everybody else 
off of their square and away from God. And we are being told here that we need to put on our union with Christ, which is the armor of God, because the devil is scheming. The next reason we're given is because the battle is spiritual. Unfortunately, here in the West, we live in a culture that is permeated by philosophical naturalism. And philosophical naturalism is the belief that all that exists is this material world that you can perceive with your senses, as if everything has existence and being apart from any spiritual providence. And, and unfortunately, this worldview has even infiltrated the church to the point that missionaries are often sent to the global south or to the far east where people have what's called a fear and power worldview paradigm because they are hyper aware of the spiritual realities that are at hand. And then the church is unable to present the gospel as a solution to their fears. But we are being told here that the only way to overcome the spiritual battle that is at hand is in our union with Christ, which is the armor of God. And we are also told to do so because we cannot resist evil otherwise. Every one of us are born with a sinful nature. That means that we're not only prone to radical autonomy, wanting to do things our own way apart from God, but we are also prone to sinning. We are prone to transgressing against God, transgressing against his law, because we want to be a law unto ourselves. And everybody outside of Christ is a mere puppet of the devil. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, it says that those that oppose the truth should be gently instructed in hopes that God grants them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, so that... They can escape from the trap of the devil who is taking them captive to do his will. If you think about the night before Jesus was betrayed when he was in the upper room and he was about to institute the Lord's Supper, the word tells us that Satan entered into Judas in order to go and do his business. And in the same way, those who are not in a union with Christ are prone to be used as puppets of the devil. So we need our union with Christ, which is the armor of God, and we are being told here to put it on. Yet once we put it on, what do we do in it? Well, the next directive tells us to take a stand in the armor of God. Take a stand in the armor of God. Take a look at 14 through 17. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Some of you in here have probably served in the fire department, the police department, even the military. And if you can just for a moment, imagine being commanded by your superior officer to 
suit up for service. Whether that means putting on a bulletproof vest or a fireproof suit, perhaps some Kevlar. Once you've suited up for armor, what would the next directive be? You would obviously expect the next directive to be a command to go out on the offensive. Whether that means to go up into a blazing building or to kick in a door serving a warrant or to go overseas on a rescue mission. In any event, the next step would be to do something in the offense. Yet that doesn't exist with God. And that is because all the work of salvation has already been done in Christ. You do not contribute to any of it. Instead, we are told to put on the whole armor of God, which is our union with Christ, and to stand in it. And as we stand in it, we are transformed by it. And we are given six pieces of armory here in this portion of our text that are used to describe ways in which we are to change the way we live. And the first one we see is the belt of truth. This is actually coming from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 5 where it says righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and truth the belt of his loins. Now when we read the Bible and we look at Paul's letters we need to understand that sometimes Paul would refer to or quote out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament and sometimes he used the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. This is one of the times where he's referring to the Greek translation. So if you go into your ESV here and you flip back to this passage, you'll see that the ESV, having been translated out of the Hebrew text, instead of the word truth, it says faithfulness. But what we need to understand is that truth and faithfulness always go together. And when they come together, they equal faithfulness. So not only do both passages say the same thing, but we are being challenged here to consider whether or not we are being faithful to God. And we do that by determining whether or not we are living a life of truth, truth and integrity. Are you the same person here that you are at home? Are you the same person at work and out in the public square? Do you have secrets between you and your spouse? Are you honest in your business dealings? You cannot go anywhere on any form of media without hearing something right now about Donald Trump. And one of the big things right now that's out there is that Donald Trump has been found to be unfaithful in his business dealings throughout the years. And so now they are using that in order to discredit him from the presidency. Well, in a similar way, all of us are ambassadors of Christ. We are to represent Jesus, not just here, but in our home, at work, out in the public square, everywhere we go. We are to represent Christ, and you cannot do that unless you're living a life of truth and integrity. So put on the belt of truth. The next piece of armory we see here is the breastplate of righteousness. And this one is coming from Isaiah 59:17, where he says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
Now we can obviously tell here that all of these pieces of armory are talking about Jesus coming as the Messiah, and they are all rooted in the Old Testament. But in order for us to really wrap our minds around what is actually being communicated in this one, we actually have to zoom out for a little bit of context, and we are going to do that by reading verses 12 through 20 there in Isaiah 59. Before we do, you need to know that Isaiah was a prophet about 750 years before the incarnation of Christ in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is around Jerusalem, around the temple. And so these were the people who felt closest to God. Yet on behalf of them, look at what he says. He says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord. And turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justices turn back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west in his glory, from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. The people of God were not living lives of truth and righteousness, not uprightness, which is the literal translation of righteousness. And so they were not doing so because they couldn't, because they had corrupted hearts. And so God promised to come himself and to be our righteousness, to be our truth, to be our salvation. And it says to the coastlands, to the Gentile nations, to all the nations, all those who turn from transgression in repentance will have a redeemer in Christ. All of us are born with a sinful nature. We have no righteousness and no truth and no ability in and of ourselves. But in our union with Christ, we are enabled to live like him. We are enabled to live a life of truth. We are enabled to be righteous. And we are being told here to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The next piece of armory that we see here is the shoes to share the gospel of peace. Take a look at verse 15. It says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In the English language, it matters where we put a word in any given sentence. In other words, 
where we put a word in any given sentence will determine the meaning of that sentence. But that is not the case in Koine Greek. Does anybody in here like algebra? Not a whole lot of us, right? (laughs) Translating Greek is a lot like algebra. We have to figure out which word goes with which word, and it's all determined by prefixes and suffixes and other things at play. And the way that these sentences are constructed sometimes makes it really difficult to determine what exactly was being said. And so sometimes we end up in a situation where it can be either or. And this is one of those times where there is a difference of opinion. And we can see that the translators of the ESV take the opinion that what's being said is that we need to receive the shoes of readiness having received the gospel of peace. But there are others who argue that what's actually being said is that we need to receive the shoes of readiness to be able to preach the gospel of peace. And I say it's both. Because you cannot give away something that you have not received. In fact, you must first receive the gospel and be transformed by it before you can preach the gospel to others. But let us not not fail to notice here that it's called the gospel of peace. And that is because Paul was referring to Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There are two things that we need to recognize. First off, that all of us who are born in a sinful nature are naturally enemies of God, which places us under the judgment and wrath of God. And the only way to be at peace with God is to be reconciled in Christ. Secondly, we need to also know that when we are brought together as the church, we are not in an individual union with Christ. We are in a corporate union with Christ. And that's why in this particular letter, Paul stresses the universality of the church. We are in a corporate union with Christ, but we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different places, and we need to be united in peace because Christ transcends culture. Christ transcends language. Christ transcends color. We are all one in Christ. And if we back up in Ephesians to chapter 2, look at what it says in verses 14 through 18. For he himself, meaning Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself One new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Not only should we recognize here that salvation is a Trinitarian act, 
but we should also recognize here that Jews and Gentiles are being united as one new humanity in Christ. At the end there where it says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off, this was talking about the Gentiles, those who were outside of Israel, those who were outside of God's covenant, those who felt far away from him. And those who were near was talking about the Jews, those who were inside of Israel, around the temple, and under the covenant, feeling close to God. Yet all of us are united together in one spirit to the Father in Christ, and that is how we bring peace to the world. Right now, we can just look at what's going on over in Israel and say there is no peace out there. And that is because they are outside of Christ. But inside of Christ, we have peace. And so we need to receive the gospel of peace and to be at peace with God in Christ and to be at peace with each other in Christ. And then we need to be ready to preach the gospel so that others can see this peace as well. The next piece of armory that we see is the shield of faith. And this one is coming from Psalm 28.7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Roman soldiers used to carry giant wooden shields. They were four feet long and about three feet wide with concave sides. And as they would go out into a battlefield or they would go among an enemy area, what they would end up doing is taking those shields and dipping them in water. And so they would carry these shields, and if somebody would shoot a flaming arrow, it would sink into the wood and be extinguished. And in the same way, we are being told to put on our union with Christ and to trust in him alone in order to distinguish or to make every effort of the enemy fall to the ground, because those in Christ cannot fall. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus will lose none of all those that are given to him by the Father. And it also tells us that neither life nor death nor anything else can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So put on the shield of faith. The next piece of armory that we see is the helmet of salvation. We have already seen how this one was in that other passage in Isaiah 57, but Paul also used it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on a breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us first notice here that it's talking about a change in life. But since we belong to the day, we're no longer children of the night. We don't do deeds of the, in the darkness. Rather, we are in the light of the Lord and we are to act as such. And therefore, we must be sober-minded, having put on the breastplate of faith, trusting in the Lord alone, and love, sacrificing for each other, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We do not put on the helmet of salvation in order to accomplish our salvation. In Ephesians, salvation has already happened, so the helmet of salvation is to be put on as protection in perseverance. In Romans 12, we're told that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
for those of us who were here for the series on 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter begins the letter and ends the letter saying that by the grace and knowledge of God in Christ, we are transformed and we grow. All of this is necessary, and so we put on the helmet of salvation as protection from the false teachers, protection from the lies of the enemy as we are in a battle zone. And we need the helmet of salvation in our union with Christ, but it does not accomplish our salvation. In fact, back in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul specifically told us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we contribute absolutely nothing, but in our union with Christ, we have the helmet of salvation to protect us in our understanding of what he has done and who he is and who we get to be in him. The next piece of armory that we see is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And this one is coming from Isaiah 11, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or declare disputes, by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. When Jesus came the first time, he came to save. He was born of the woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law. But when he comes back, he's coming back in judgment. And all those who are not in a union with Christ will be killed. We need to understand that the word of God is a word of judgment. You can either be saved through judgment or you can be condemned through judgment. In Hebrews, we're told that the word of God is a double-edged sword. And so as the word of God is presented to us, we either receive Christ and are saved, or we reject Christ and are condemned. Either way, it's a word of judgment. And we are not given the word of God as some offensive tool in order to wield it ourselves like we see some people trying to do. Instead, Jesus modeled for us how we're to manage with the word of God. If you remember, right after his baptism, the Holy Spirit led him out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And what did the devil do? He took God's word and he twisted it and tried to bend it towards himself. He was trying to get Jesus to sin. He was trying to get Jesus to worship him. He was trying to get Jesus to turn away from the Father. But what did Jesus do? He upheld the truth 
of God's word and he used it to stand upon. Remember, we are given the, the word of God as the sword of the spirit as a means of standing in our union with Christ, which is the armor of God. And we are to stand upon the truth of God's word. Now, we have seen clearly that we are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are to do that by putting on our union with Christ, which is the armor of God, and change the way we live. Then we're to stand in the armor of God and change the way we live, and we're given those six pieces of armory to describe the way we are to be transformed in Christ. But then what? What else are we to do? We're told next to pray in the armor of God. Pray in the armor of God. Take a look at 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We are given seven ways to pray in our union with Christ, which is the armor of God. The first way is constantly. We are to pray constantly and continuously. Prayer is not just something we do when we wake up or before we go to bed. Prayer is not just something we do before we eat a meal. Prayer is not just something we do when things are going wrong and we think we need help. We are to pray constantly, and we are to pray in the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that searches the depths of God and the depths of man and illuminates us to the truth of God's Word and enables us to be able to connect with God intimately and to pray to Him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, look at what it says. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have, not we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We must be born again. And as such, 
when we are born again, we are brought into a union with Christ, and we are given an ability to understand what God speaks to us. And then we are able to respond to that with words that he himself gives us in our union with Christ, because in the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. The next, the next way we're told to pray is diligently which is to pray with all types of prayer. Early on in my walk with Christ, I came across an acronym that has been very helpful in my devotions, and that is the word ACTS. The A stands for adoration, where we first begin by lifting up praises to God for who he is. He is sovereign. He is the king. He is the creator. He is the unmoved mover. He is the eternal one that loves us and so on. We can lift up praises to him in adoration. The C stands for confession. First and foremost, we must confess our sins. And in 1 John 1.9, it does say that those who confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them their sins and purify them for, from all unrighteousness. And beyond confessing our sins to God, we can also confess our faith in him. Throughout the history of the church, God's people have always held to creeds and confessions. And we use these in prayer in order to confess what we believe about our God, and it solidifies that within ourselves. The T stands for thanksgiving. And we are to thank God for everything in our lives. I would recommend that you do not just thank God for those things you find to be positive, but that you thank him for everything, even when it seems to be negative, because all of it is divine providence. Though many of you might not know this, I used to ride a motorcycle. And one day, 11 years ago, I went for a ride out on Beck's Run Road. Anybody know where Beck's Run Road is? All right, so it was a bright and sunny day. The air was crisp. It was really nice. There was no cars out on the road. And I turned right off of East Carson there going up Beck's Run Road when a phone line falls off a house across the street, comes down in the road, hooks my clutch lever, yanking the wheel sideways and catapulting me off the bike face first into the ground, and as I'm sliding across the road, the bike bounces and comes down on my leg, destroying my knee. I lost my job, I lost my home, I had to withdraw from college, and then I had to relocate to a whole nother city and went through hardship after hardship after hardship. However, this is how God was bringing me to faith in Christ. And so... Praise God, even when the thing looks negative, it's all divine providence if you belong to him. The last one, the S in Acts, stands for supplication, where we actually ask God for things. And we don't just ask him for our physical needs. Yes, you can ask him for your, your provisions and so forth and your health or whatnot, but also ask him for the spiritual things. Ask him for the salvation of your family. Ask him for the salvation of your neighbors. Ask him to help you to overcome sins in your life. We need to ask God for things, and ACTS, as an acronym, helps us to pray diligently. The next way we're told to pray here is with alertness. 
We are to be aware of the fact that we live in a spiritual war zone. There are spiritual things at play that we cannot perceive with our senses. Nonetheless, this is why you continue to fall into sin. Because you're constantly being attacked in a battlefield, yet we are to pray accordingly, understand this, understanding this. We are also to pray in perseverance. And here this does not mean to pray for perseverance. If you are in a union with Christ, you are automatically preserved in him. We have already heard how, how Jesus will lose none of all those given to him by the Father. Instead, this is talking about persevering in our prayer. Every one of us in here who actually have a prayer life at some point in time has prayed some kind of prayer that we felt to be very important and one that was not answered the way we wanted it to be answered. Perhaps you prayed that a loved one would be spared, but they passed away. Perhaps you prayed for a job that you actually really needed because when you didn't get the job, you wound up evicted and homeless. Either way, every one of us in here go through hardships and trials and tribulations and such, and we're all coming from different backgrounds, and we have all prayed for things that were not answered in the way that we want them to be answered. Nonetheless, we are being told here that regardless the way things look on the outside, continue in your prayer. Continue and persevere in your prayer because this is our connection to God. We are also told to pray for the universal church, not just for our local church, for all Christians. Right now, we should be praying for those in Muslim lands because the Muslim leaders are calling for a worldwide jihad right now. Okay, We should also be praying for those who are suffering in areas that were struck by, uh, struck by war, like in Israel, or struck by earthquakes, like in Morocco, and other places such as that. And we can also be praying for the Christians throughout our city. At the very least, we should be praying for revival, but we need to be praying for the universal church. And lastly, we're told that we need to pray for the gospel to go forth with power. At the end of the day, nobody, nobody has any hope apart from Christ. Because Christ is the living hope. He's the only hope. And apart from a union with him, there is no way to overcome the spiritual battle. You will be overtaken by evil if you are outside of Christ. And the only way people come into a union with Christ is by first receiving the, the inward call from God and then the outward call of the gospel, bringing them to faith in Christ. And so we need to pray that the gospel goes forth with power. The key to effectively wearing the armor of God, which is our union with Christ, is prayer, continuous prayer of all kinds with an emphasis on the gospel going forth with power as the gospel is how others are delivered from the forces of darkness and the church is assured of her union with Christ. We have seen that we are commanded to be strong in the Lord and to put on our union with Christ as the armor of God. To be changed in that as we stand in the armor 
and to be transformed into his likeness as we are being molded into the image of Christ as the Spirit works through the word in our lives. And then we are told to pray because none of that is possible apart from prayer. This is our, our intimate connection with the God of the universe, the, the only God that exists. The, the true God, the one who made you, the one who sustains you, the one who all of us have to participate in for our being and for everything. He has made himself known in the world and in the Bible and in Jesus. And we must pray to him. Pray, pray, pray. So let's pray. Who are we, O oh God? We are nobody. But we look to you and we know that you are everything. You are glorious. You are awesome. We thank you for having created us. We thank you for providentially maintaining your creation and continuing to do so. We thank you for enabling us to know you even if it's only through an analogical sense. We thank you for the renewing of our mind in your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you help us to continue to read your word and to be changed by it. We ask that you transform us in our union with Christ and that you help us to overcome the spiritual battle that is at hand by changing the way we live and living differently than the world. Help us, God. Help us to give you all the glory. Help us to live a life worthy of the calling that you have given us. Help us to surrender ourselves and to live lives of repentance. Help us to go to war against the sins in our lives. Help us to be your people and to represent you well everywhere we go by living lives of truth and righteousness. We know that none of this is possible apart from the working of your Holy Spirit inside of us and among us. So we ask you, God, to use us and to change us and to help us to live lives that reflect your glory. And we do so.